History Nerds United. Hello, nerds. Welcome to History Nerds United podcast. I am your head nerd, Brendan. Today, author Bill Schaefer of the scandalous Hamilton's true crime book in the Gilded Age. More twists and turns than like the best Netflix series you've ever seen. Like seriously, it's all true. You'll hear Bill and I just try not to step on any of the big revelations, but this thing has so many twists and turns, it's insane. I guess you probably want to hear about that, don't you? Okay, I'm going to shut up. Bill Schaefer, let's talk to him. All right, Bill Schaefer, author of The Scandalous Hamiltons. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Uh, Thanks, Brendan. Thanks for having me. Now, before I talk to any author, I always do just a little bit of research. I like to pretend I'm at least somewhat professional. And most of the time, I'll look up an author. It's like, oh, they were a journalism major, or they did this, or they did that. I would say that your path to writing a book was not necessarily the usual one. Can you talk a little bit about your background and how you got here? Sure. It definitely is not a direct line. My background is really in the design business. I was educated as a graphic designer and spent 30 plus years in New York in the design business, primarily in the cosmetics industry, designing department store makeup counters. I was always a a sort of dabbled in writing, uh, kind of on the side, never really had anything published and never was able to devote a lot of time to it. But I was always interested in it, and it was something that I hoped to be able to kind of get to one day. And then in 2015, I took a big step and left the uh, the design business to return to graduate school to get a, a, a master's in the history of design from Parsons, the new school. Uh, and it's a program that's run in conjunction with the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum. So your classes are up there. Uh, You can get Smithsonian fellowships and you work in the museum. But what you really learn is how to do rigorous research, not settle for secondary sources when primary sources are available, things like that. And you write a lot. And I love that part of it. So that really kind of kicked off this sort of second phase of my career and led me eventually to the Scandalous Hamiltons. I do love the story of how you got the idea for this. If you could tell the listeners, how did you even hear about Robert Ray Hamilton and how did this all start? When people ask me, you know, how did, how did you find the book or how did you find the subject for the book? My usual response is the book found me, <laughs> actually. My wife and I uh, got married in New York. We were living here, but we bought a house in Connecticut to raise our daughter. She is now grown and out of the house. We were empty nesters. And we decided to move back into the city. And so we took an apartment on the Upper West Side and about four blocks from our building at 76th Street and Riverside Drive is the Hamilton Fountain. And it was just a couple of months after we moved in. It was a bitterly cold January night. I was walking back from an errand and I saw this fountain and it literally stopped me in my tracks. And I thought, this looks like something you would see at Grand Central Terminal. Grand Central happens to be my favorite building in the city. I do a lot of architectural historical research. And so I'm familiar with a lot of the sort of motifs and design elements from that time. And it really struck me as something that could easily be there. And even though I was freezing, I took a minute to read the Parks Department little placard next to the fountain. Just scanned it quickly. Robert Ray Hamilton involved in a scandal, gave money for this fountain, and it was designed by Warren and Wetmore. 
and Warren and Wetmore are actually in conjunction with a firm called Reed and Stern are the architects that designed Grand Central Terminal. Warren and Wetmore was a very sort of noted, very high profile, high end architectural firm in New York. And I'm walking back to our apartment thinking, why the heck is Warren and Wetmore doing this obscure little fountain in this obscure little niche of the corner of the Upper West Side? So when I got home, I I just kind of did a quick Google search, Hamilton Fountain, Robert Ray Hamilton. And if you do that, there are a number of blog posts that come up that kind of talk about this scandal. You know, not all of them describe it accurately or consistently with one another, but it was sort of floating out there in the internet ether. So I thought, hmm, that's an odd story. There must be a book about it. And so when I went to look for a book, of course, I didn't find one. And that's when I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to write this book. Now, I made that decision on the basis of a parks department placard and, you know, a 15-minute Google search. But I knew somehow that this was a story to be told in a longer form than I could find online. So I started digging into the research for it to see if I could find enough material to constitute a full book. And if it was a enough of a quality or verifiable material that I could kind of pinpoint all of the sources and really make it factual and nonfiction story. Because I didn't want to write something that was sort of half-baked in terms of part fact and part conjecture or, or whatever. I mean, that part of the process definitely gives me anxiety and I'm not even writing it, right? Because it's, you could spend hours and weeks and months and then get to it and you're like, I've got 80 good pages, and now what do I do with all of that time? I mean, that's rough. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And I got a couple of fortunate breaks in that one, without giving away all that transpires in the book, there are a number of courtroom scenarios, both criminal and civil, and I was able to find all of the court records. So that that was huge, because that put a lot of people in place officially, not kind of rumored to be involved or somebody said something, you know, in a newspaper article, but it wasn't backed up someplace else. So that that was a big step. And then the other fortunate part of it was that I found that there was a box of papers relating to this scandal in the New York Historical Society's library, which is eight blocks from my house. So I put in a call to take a look at the box. And it's interesting. It's the Ray family, which is Robert Ray Hamilton's mother's family. The Ray family papers are at this historical society. And there is this basically box of material that pertains to Ray. His name was Robert Ray Hamilton, but everybody called him Ray. They were letters from his father, his brother, his friends, uh, strangers, all reacting to this, this series of events that he found himself in. And there was nothing in, in his hand saying, you know, I felt this about Eva, or I felt this about this part of the event. There's nothing that that gave you any insight into his thinking, but there was a lot of material of people reacting to what had happened and basically offering sympathy and ready to stand by Ray because, you know, some, some not great things came out about him in the news, we shall say. 
Yeah, I mean, Robert Ray being a descendant of Alexander Hamilton, right? Right. All of these things that happen, it is very telling as you read through the book that, like you said, he's kind of an enigma almost the entire time because he's left so much, but you found a lot of people reacting to him in in various different ways. Right. As things came out and they weren't sure. But just to kind of set him up, he is one of the scions of the Hamilton family. He grows up extremely rich, like Rockefeller, important and all of that stuff. And then enters, we're just going to call her Eva, because I think it's fun to read through the book and try and figure out what her name is. But what's kind of the background there? How does Eva kind of come out of nowhere and how do people react to her when she first comes on the scene? So I think one of the interesting things to me when it all sort of started coming out was this contrast between Ray and Eva in that Ray grew up in extraordinary privilege. His great-grandfather was Alexander Hamilton his grandfather, John Church Hamilton, who was a historian and, and biographer of his own father. Uh, Ray's fa- uh, father was Schuyler Hamilton Sr., who was a West Point grad, a veteran of both the Mexican-American War, served in the Civil War, and was kind of the keeper of that part of the Hamiltons family's name. So Ray went to Columbia University, Columbia Law School, He was an attorney. The Hamilton family owned properties all over Manhattan and in Brooklyn. Ray, at one point, owned 32 different parcels of properties, both in Manhattan and Brooklyn. It it was a life of privilege. To contrast that, Eva, who became his wife, she grew up dirt poor in kind of Pennsylvania coal country, the northeast part of, of Pennsylvania up around Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, around there. Um, her father was uh, an itinerant logger. He uh, just dragged the family around from logging camp to logging camp whenever there was work. Coal was king up in that part of Pennsylvania. And so they were cutting through forests to lay train tracks to you know mine coal and haul it out of there across the country. And um, uh, she was the, one of six children born to this logger, was also an alcoholic. And she grew up in, in circumstances that couldn't be any more different than Ray's. For all of the privilege that he had, she had absolutely none of it. So there were, when we talk about the Gilded Age and robber barons and this n- enormous explosion of wealth, Yes, that was certainly happening. But the other side of the Gilded Age was people who were dirt poor, who were basically breaking their backs to help these robber barons make their fortunes. So you have these two worlds that collide in a pretty profound way when Ray and Eva meet and subsequently begin a relationship. I do often think my first major financial mistake in my life was not being born into a rich family. <laughs> Mine too. I tell you. But we, we have to move on. We have to. And you bring these two people together, and it seems like Ray kind of knows that he's going against the grain here. He kind of keeps Eva a bit separate from everybody. Even the marriage is kind of shrouded in mystery, which is kind of a big deal He really kind of took a chance by even being with Eva. He had to have some sort of feelings for her because he was putting a lot on the line because, as you just mentioned, 
he was kind of, for lack of a better term, crossing the tracks and bringing somebody right. who was not part of that world into that world, right? Yeah. You know, what's kind of interesting about him in the sense of this sort of duty and family point of view is that if you contrast Ray with his younger brother, Skylar Jr., Skylar Jr. also owned part of the family real estate portfolio, also went to Columbia, was a practicing architect when he first got out of school. But he married a woman who also came from that sort of upper stratosphere of society. He married, and I'll use this term, quote, properly, you know, a, a, a rich young man marries a rich, a rich young woman. And that was the way it was supposed to go. And so all of these families that existed at the highest end of the levels of society, they all sort of married each other. They went to school with each other. They saw each other at social events. And that was the way the world was supposed to work. Ray was a bit of a contrarian in that regard. First of all, he was, a, he was an avid outdoorsman. After he graduated from law school, he took a long trip uh, out west by himself. He was a, a hunter, a fisherman. He owned all kinds of shotguns and fishing rods and hunting equipment and outdoor gear and all of that kind of thing. And and so I think that upholding of the societal part of his name, I don't think was that important to him. Now, he didn't want to do anything to besmirch the family name. That wasn't his intention. I mean, he totally respected his father and and what the Hamilton name meant. But I don't think he had a profound interest in kind of keeping it the way his father did, if that makes sense. When he met Eva, I think that was just part of his indifference might be too strong of a word, but of his not feeling the need to toe the line exactly as it was laid out in terms of what the expectations were for somebody with the name Hamilton. I was totally prepared with that type of setup to read and have the inciting incident be something like, oh, you know, he threw her out a window or something, or she hired a hitman to kill him. It's actually the inciting incident that gets this entire book going is kind of technically nothing to do with Ray. It has to do with Eva and a housekeeper. Do me a favor. Tell me a little bit about that one. So Ray and Eva were married in January of 1889, and they left shortly thereafter. They were married in 1889 because Eva had told him several months before that she was pregnant with his child and that when that baby was born, they should get married. So Ray didn't jump at that <laughs> that idea, but... He eventually came around to it. There's a lot more that happens, but I don't want to give too much of that away at this point. We got to step careful. <laughs> but they did get married on January 7th in 1889 in Patterson, New Jersey. And it wasn't a society wedding by any stretch. They did not tell anybody in his family or her family. In fact, the two witnesses to the wedding that needed to sign the, um, uh, the marriage certificate were the uh, reverend who married them, his wife and his mother-in-law. So after that marriage, they went off to um, San Diego. Ray, I think, was interested in developing real estate out there. Eva thought that 
he wanted to go out there to kind of avoid his family eventually come back to New York and say, I met this woman, Eva, in California, and here's my new wife. So there were there were two potentially different motivating forces to go there. But regardless of what the motivation was, they hired a baby nurse, a woman named Marianne Donnelly, to serve as a wet nurse for their new child, a little girl named Beatrice. A lot of those baby nurses at that time came from sort of poor circumstances. They could be pretty rough and and tumble characters. And Marianne Donnelly certainly fit into that category. They hired Marianne Donnelly. They all went to California and ended up coming back in the summertime. Eva lost a lot of weight while she was out there. She missed some people that were important in her life uh, while they were out there. And so they returned to Atlantic City at the end of August. But between their marriage in January and this time in August, Marianne Donnelly had a suspicion that not everything was on the up and up in Ray and Eva's uh, marriage. And she confronted Eva in a cottage in Atlantic City, basically threatening to tell Ray her theory about what was going on between Eva and, and some other people. Both Eva and Nurse Donnelly were heavy drinkers. They started drinking at about eight o'clock one morning, uh, actually even a little earlier than that. And on the day that the Hamiltons were due to uh, travel back to New York, and Marianne Donnelly thought, okay, now's the time. I'm going to tell them. And when she told Eva that this is what she was going to do, Eva stabbed her. Didn't kill her, but he, she stabbed her. It caused quite a commotion, as one might imagine. And Eva was arrested on the charge of atrocious assault. Marianne Donnelly ended up surviving the attack. But this happened on a Monday morning, right? By five o'clock at that afternoon, Reporters from all of the papers in Philadelphia, New York, Baltimore had descended on Knoll Cottage, the place where they were staying. And by that next morning, it was front page news everywhere that the wife of Robert Ray Hamilton has been arrested for stabbing the baby nurse. Some newspapers said that she had actually killed the nurse. There wasn't a lot of fact-checking that went on in some newspapers at the time. That's what blew everything up. Well, I want to make sure the readers understand this. We didn't just give away the whole book here. We're still in the first quarter of the book. This is all just set up because what I thought too, especially once the newspapers descend on Atlantic City and the cottage and everything like that, it just feels so very, you know, American media and, you know, a lot of other medias. But, you know, we're talking about the American, which is, oh, we got a rich guy. We've got a woman we don't know much about and a scandal is happening and they just descend upon this and they're looking for anything and everything. They're following people around. They're sitting outside of jail cells. It's really just an absolute frenzy. Absolutely. You know, one thing I say in the introduction to the book is I liken the Hamilton name then to the Kennedy name today. You know, we are long past the unfortunate events in Dallas in, you know, 1963. But when you hear the Kennedy name in the news, even today, you know, for a lot of people, their ears perk up. It's like, oh, the Kennedy family, what's happening with the Kennedy family? 
And the Hamilton name was was very much like that. It was still, you know, it was 80 years after the duel between Alexander Hamilton and and, uh, Aaron Burr. But because the Hamilton family had such a high profile in New York, they were in the news a lot. And most of the time they were in the news for, you know, philanthropic reasons or political reasons or whatever. They certainly weren't in the news for scandalous behavior. And so when this broke, here is the Hamilton name associated with this scandal. It was a bit of a media feeding frenzy. Today, if that would have happened by five o'clock that evening, you would have had satellite trucks around the block and, you know, police cordoned off the area and news reporters doing stand up, you know, remotes from one end of Atlantic City to the other. Uh, It would have been trending, you know, uh, all over social media and been the breaking news banner on the bottom of your screen. But at the time, the only media were daily newspapers. And so all of the newspapers, just like they do now or any media does, you fight for reader attention, right? And so how are you going to get reader attention? The more sensational and attention-grabbing you can make the story, the better your chances are of getting eyeballs on it. And so the media obviously has changed from today, from 130 years ago, but the concept is still the same. You know, breaking news is breaking news and trying to be the first one out there with a story, have an angle to the story that nobody else has. That was all in play. Some of the headlines were quite outlandish. And, you know, I I have a number of them in the book, but it was a media sensation for sure. I mean, that was my favorite was they just straight up said that the nurse is dead <laughs> when she was clearly not like she was, they could have really checked on that. But I mean, it just murder self. I mean, yeah. you know, true crime. People love it. Right. So they descend. It starts a whole thing. Uh, as we talked about before, you and I hit start on the podcast. We wanted to be careful about where we were stepping. Right. Let's just say there's trial number one. And things start to come apart in a lot of different ways. We'll, we'll just leave it at that. We won't talk about it. But what I find interesting and what you hone in on, too, is the internal life of the Hamilton and Ray family as this is going on. What's going to happen when this information comes out? Is Ray going to be cut off? Right? Is he going to be the rich kid that all of a sudden he's out of the family and he's lost everything? And that's just another thread you kind of leave dangling until you find more information on that. I mean, that had to be really invaluable to you to be able to get some of those personal things, because relying on the newspapers, as you said, is a tough proposition. But getting those internal letters from the family must have been absolutely invaluable. I wouldn't have been able to write the book with the perspective I was able to without that corroborating information. And one of the things that happens is that Right after this incident, Ray is the well-connected attorney. He's a state assemblyman. His friends and colleagues in New York are sending telegrams that afternoon. There's a half-inch thick stack of telegrams in this box of documents saying, if you need help, I'll come to Atlantic City right away. If it wasn't telegrams, it was letters that arrived by post the next day. And his father and brother, after a brief recognition of hey, it sounds like something not great has happened to you. Let us know what's going on. 
they then actually kind of go radio silent. And Ray is on his own, in a sense, you know, he, it's not like his father got on the next train and came down and did a media appearance with Ray and said, you know, my son is, you know, a good boy and all that kind of stuff, even though he's a grown man of 36 years old by that time. But that didn't happen. Ray was really out there on his own. It wasn't until a little later, and at least that first phase of things started to resolve itself, that his father and brother came back and said, okay, you did a good job and all is right with the world here for the moment. Family legacies are funny things, you know, and, and not, not just theirs, but anybody's, you know, and how you maintain a family name and how you try to keep a level of integrity is very hard when what's happening in the book is happening because it's it's not great news there for a little while. And then it sort of goes through another few peaks and valleys, which we won't give away now. That's the thing is this part of the book, right? The trial comes up. There's some twists and turns just in the trial alone and what's kind of coming out and everything. And I'll just say the trial ends. We won't give that part away because I remember thinking, I'm like, I don't know how this is going to go. I've read enough true crime to know that when you're going back to Gilded Age type things, it can go either way. Right. But this is the first time where I stopped and I went, there's a lot of pages here. <laughs> I mean, did Bill just put in a bunch of pictures and this keeps going? I mean, this is just there's still a lot of twists and turns, but I'll just say the trial ends and it must be nice being rich because Ray decides, I'm just going to go out west and build a hotel. Like that, He just decides to do that and he takes off. And Eva is kind of left to her own devices to kind of figure out how she's going to take her next, next steps. But this goes back to Ray just being very interesting, which is you've said he doesn't want to embarrass the family. But he's also that weird sibling that will all of a sudden just go on a kind of eat, pray, love tour and just disappear for a few years and then come back and just say, hey, I'm into this now. Right. I think that the onslaught of headlines, the constant scrutiny by the news media and the pressure whenever he was on a witness stand, the newspapers breathlessly described everything, you know, not only that he said on the witness stand, but his expression, what he was wearing, if he slumped his head or if he spoke confidently. He was really under that sort of media microscope. And when he went out west, one big advantage for him, I suspect, again, I don't have this in his own words, is where he went, there was not a daily newspaper within 100 miles. Forget even trying to build a hotel or bag an elk or whatever else he wanted to do. There was no daily newspapers. He didn't have to wake up in the morning and over his bacon and eggs, read about his own life and everything that he had done the day before. So if nothing else, that had to be a monumental sigh of relief. Contrast that to Eva. She's come up this hard scrabble life like she knows she's got to do things to keep things going. She's the exact opposite. It seems like she sits there and says, I need to keep being in the news. I need to keep this story going again, tiptoeing very carefully so as not to give anything away. <laughs> she figures out a bunch of ways to stay in the news. And even if she's just a footnote in that paper, she's a hustler. She's she's out there making it happen. She's a hustler and she loves the attention. She's a natural born performer. 
And, you know, when all of the, the spotlight was on her, you know, she reveled in it. She, you know, in her courtroom appearance, appearances, she was decked out head to toe. She kind of made her entrance into courtrooms like a movie star. She loved it. And ended up, again, we'll, we'll, we'll tread carefully here. It became a moment of sort of be careful what you wish for, because all of that attention ended up not being helpful to her. If Ray was an introvert, she was an extrovert, for sure. Up until the very end for her, she had no problem with the media circus at all. I felt towards the end of the book, when all was said and done, I thought for a second, and was it that Ray got caught up and he felt like he had to do the right thing? Did Eva really care about him or was she after the money? And for me, I couldn't answer that question. Was there actually any connection between them at any point? Because it seems like there were at times that they did care for each other. When you went through all of this, do you have an answer for that one? Was this two opportunists who just decided this fit or did it just go off the rails after it started pretty well? That's a great question, and one that is ultimately unanswerable in that, again, we don't have anything from Ray in his hand that says, I loved Eva with all my heart. I've always loved her. I always will love her. And you don't have anything from Eva that says, the minute I saw Ray Hamilton, my life changed, and that was all I ever wanted, et cetera, et cetera. They kind of talk to the media or in courtroom testimony where they reveal themselves a little bit, but there's nothing in either of their own hands that describes their innermost feelings about each other. So I had to be very careful in the book, writing it and not trying to put words into their mouths in terms of what their feelings were for each other. But I will say that their relationship began in 1885, and it lasted until 1889 when they got married. So there were four years where they were essentially together, not necessarily exclusively, but there had to be some level of feeling for each other to continue the relationship for that long before they got married. And then obviously... After they got married, they were with each other all the time. So it's a perplexing question for me. All I can say is they had to have some kind of feelings for each other or the relationship wouldn't have lasted that long. And regardless of the circumstances of Beatrice's birth, if Ray didn't want to marry her, he wouldn't have married her. And vice versa with Eva, if she decided, you know what? I'm just going to have this baby. You give me child support, whatever the equivalent was at that time, and I'm going to go on with my own life. She could have done that too. But for any number of reasons, they stayed together. So there had to be, in that four-year period, some feeling for each other. But I leave it to the readers to determine that for themselves because I can't say factually one way or the other. So the book is almost out. Can you confirm that you and Lin-Manuel Miranda are working on a play based upon the book. If you can't say it, I understand. You can just <laughs> nod your head. My guess is that he's probably kind of had his fill of Hamilton, but you never know. I'm open if he is. Keep checking your email. You never know. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So one of the reasons uh, History Nerd United started is that a lot of people remember history from grade school. And they were bored and they heard the same story about George Washington and the cherry tree. And they're like, I want to read fiction. I don't want to read history. History is boring. If you were looking at one of those people and they said, why should I read The Scandalous Hamiltons? What would you say to them? 
I would say that not to be too simplistic about it. One, it's a good story. It's it it could be a fictional story. In fact, when I was doing all the research, I'd run across parts of things, you know, new bits of information. And I'd say, no, this can't be true. No, this this didn't really happen. And I'd look a little further and it'd be something to corroborate it. On a very basic level, it's a good story. Uh, it's got all of the good conflicts of love and hate and all the sort of juxtapositions of, of things that I think go into a good story, or at least things that I like to read. If you have any interest in that time period, I think it gives um, a window into the haves and have-nots of that time um, and what it meant to have money, what it meant to not have it, and the things that you did if you were coming or didn't do from each of those positions. I think it's a, a slice of the way media operates and, you know, that fight to get a story. And when you read some of the things that happen in the book, it's really not that different than it is today. You know, closed door testimony in courtrooms somehow gets leaked to the press from one side or the other, trying to win in the court of popular opinion. People rushing to publish news that whether it was fact-checked or verifiable or true or not, you know, it's like, let's get it out there and get reader attention. So I, I think there's a lot of parallels to, to modern day media celebrity that we find ourselves in today. I want to ask one more question based upon that, because a lot of these things happen with Gilded Age books, especially true crime. This was the story for a long time in America. And yet until your book, like you said, it's a footnote in a lot of places and there's not much there. How do stories like this kind of disappear after they have become such a part of the culture at a certain point in time, but then disappear to the point that someone like yourself has to look at it and say, I got to go pull all this together and turn it into something. You know, I think the rush to news kind of and newer stories and equally or maybe more fascinating stories or whatever they are kind of get piled on top of it and it becomes sediment, you know, down in the in the bottom of the of the media story pool. And so I think that one thing that historians do is, you know, we, we dig, we poke around, we, we try to find stories that haven't been told before. And I was really fortunate to find this one, or like I said at the beginning, to have it find me. You know, when this story ended, it began in 1889. It ended in 1906, basically. You know, a lot happens in 15 or 16 years. You know, there were new presidents and New York City was changing and and new newspapers and cars replaced horses from the beginning of the story to the end. And so I think as, as just time evolves, stories kind of end up down on the bottom of the pile. And if you're fortunate, you find one down there today that that's worth digging out and digging up and breathing life into. So that's, that's what I've been trying to do with this book. Well, Bill, now everyone else has to go out and get it so they can hear this story. This is fantastic. Thank you so much for being on. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate it. And that's it for this episode, Bill. Thank you so much for being here. The Scandals, Hamilton's out July 26th. Get it. Trust me, you're going to like it. If you're into true crime at all, especially historical true crime, this is fantastic. Other than that, nerds, go out, find us on social media, head over to the website, leave comments, leave reviews. Tell us what you want to hear. Tell us how we're doing. We want to hear from you. Until then, talk to you later, nerds.